Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Starting a new series uh, today. Now, Esther's a, a, a tricky little book to find. It's, if, if you've got to Psalms, you've gone a little bit too far. It's a little bit before Psalms and before the book of Job, and then you get Esther's just before that. It's page 410. We've got the large print, page 483. Now, I'll say more about uh, the book later as I preach on it, but this is a book set in Persia uh, when the Israelites, uh, some of them were still in exile. But let's listen to God's word. We're going to read Esther. Uh, and the whole of chapter 1. And the, the king's name is a little difficult to pronounce, but so bear with me if I stumble over it, but we'll go with it. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple uh, to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the, the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. 
Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Kashina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Masina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahashwash delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples or in all the provinces of King Ahashwash. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahashwash commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahashwash and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did, as Mamukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. There's something amazing about the uh, trappings of power. I don't know if you just remember the the royal coaches we saw during the Queen's uh, jubilee, or a presidential motorcade like Joe Biden's. You know, when he came to Glasgow, they had to they had to shut road after road uh, for him and his 21 cars to get into the city. You know, our eyes just kind of pop out at this kind of thing. And we love it on the small scale too, you know, like VIP entrances into clubs or luxurious rooms in five-star hotels or, or beautiful clothes paraded on the red carpet. Or perhaps just even in our own workplace, you know, that, that important office with the leather chair. Uh, or just to hear the jangling of many keys. We know that the most important person is the person with the most keys in their pocket. You know, it's the trappings of power. It's intoxicating. You know, it's like the smell of melted chocolate wafting through the house. We're just, we're just kind of pulled towards it. Now, every empire, every age and place has had this kind of display of, of power and wealth. It's been different depending on where and when, but it's always been there. And so whatever age we live in, God wants us to see that kind of empire for what it is. He wants us to have our eyes open to it, to use our brains, not fall for it. It's the same in Esther's time, and it's the same uh, for us today. Now, to use the, the famous kid's story, he wants us to see that the emperor's got no clothes on. Now, now kids, there's a very famous story, if you don't know if you know it, about uh, two clothes makers. Okay? They went to an emperor and said to him that they make the most luxurious and glorious clothes ever. And they said that, they are, that these clothes are so wonderful that only the wise and the clever can see them. For everyone else, they're actually invisible. Now the king, who wanted to be seen as wise and clever, he agreed. And he came in each day to see these men kind of working away, but 
they weren't really working away with anything. They, they couldn't see, he couldn't see any of these clothes. But just so that he wasn't seen as foolish or silly, he, he never mentioned it. So after a few days working away, uh, these two men said, the, the clothes were ready. And then they pretended to put clothes onto uh, the emperor. Now, no one wanted to be seen as foolish, so no one said a thing, even though he wasn't wearing any clothes at all. And everyone kept up this kind of ridiculous lie. The, the emperor even walked down the street in front of the crowds, and they were staring and cheering, uh, also not saying anything, until a small child looking on said to his parents, but the emperor's got no clothes on. Rather than caring what anyone else thought, uh, he saw what was really going on. The emperor was stark naked. Now, why is that important? Because it's similar to what goes on in the beginning of this uh, book of Esther. The emperor, emperor and the empire is a sham. As we go through, listen out for it. And just like the crowds in this story, we can, we can go along with things that are clearly just not true so we don't look silly. But as we do, it's really us who are the silly ones. Now, here in Esther, we're in the world of emperor and his empire. And we'll see whether the emperor's got no clothes. So it's about 480 BC. That's the time of this book. Israel had been sent into exile about 100 years earlier under Nebuchadnezzar. And 70 years later, many of them had returned home. So they'd gone back uh, to Israel, but not everyone. Some Jews had remained scattered through the empire. That's the situation we're in uh, here in Esther. Some are left. Now, Ahasuerus, or he's also called um, Xerxes, as the Greeks called him, but he's on the throne of this vast empire uh, of the Medes and Persians. Uh, the remains of one of his palaces still exists in Iran today, and it was a, it was a place of absolute grandeur. So uh, the story of Esther, it's like all history books. It's a, it's a retelling of real events in real places with real people. But again, like all history books, it's told uh, in a certain way to make a certain point. Esther is an extraordinary uh, story. I'm really excited we're going to be getting into it over the next few weeks. It's a story of power and weakness. It's got tension. It's got murderous intent. It's got irony. It's a story, as we'll see, where God is actually, he's never mentioned. It's, very un- it's unique in the book, in the Bible, in that sense. He's never mentioned, but as we'll see, he's always at work. He's always w- at work bringing coincidences, salvation, and reversal. And the writer, by never speaking of him, he invites us to, to listen carefully so we see that all is God is up to. So this is a story set a long time ago, far away, but it's a story that holds deep truths for us, truths of God's glorious care and his deliverance. Now, like any story, the writer has an introduction, okay? and that's chapters 1 and 2. We'll look at 1 this week, chapter 2 next week. And it welcomes us kind of into this world of the Persian Empire and its king. And first of all, we're meant to see that this is an an impressive empire. This is the impressive empire. That's kind of verses 1 to 9. They're they're here to, to capture our imagination. This is an incredible and impressive empire. It's absolutely vast. Okay, It stretches from India to Ethiopia. That was 127 provinces then. Uh, today, you'd travel through eight separate countries. Okay, It's about 8,000 miles, a six-hour plane ride. It is colossal. And this is no collection of democratic states. This vast empire is under the imposing despotic rule of a supreme leader. 
Verse 2, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa. But more than just size and rule, this is an empire of excessive wealth and glory. The king holds a party, a party for all his officials that lasts for six months, a six-month party. And this is just a party to show off, verse 4, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. And then holds a second party. Okay, this time it's a mere, a mere seven days. Uh, but this is for everyone in the capital. You know, this is Hogmanay on steroids. Okay, imagine the whole of Edinburgh just getting a free party for a week in the castle grounds. Uh, and it's the, the royal wealth on display, isn't it? The description's amazing. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Just picture it. It's whites and blues and violet and purple. It's marble. It's gold and silver. It's an explosion of color. Bunting everywhere, street displays, parties. The, the closest I can think of is kind of like a carnival atmosphere. And the luxurious excessiveness jo- just goes on. The, the drinks are on the house. Drink as much as you like. Ahasuerus the king, he's laying it all out. This is a party like no other. Display of wealth and glory. And it's all about power. He's got his top officials and his capital city eating out of his hand. Stick with me and this is the life you get. It's wealth to command obedience. Even the fact that people could drink as much as they liked. Did you notice it had to be proclaimed in law? Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. It had to be in law. It's power and wealth kind of wrapped up together. This kind of grandeur makes him untouchable. Everyone wants a bit of it. This is my glory. This is how the world works. Your allegiance should be mine. It's the impressive empire. And he's not alone for this kind of spectacle, this kind of visual concerto. Rulers and emperors have always done it. Grand statues, commanding palaces, royal processions. Just think of Trooping of the Color. You know, now it's a tourist spectacle, but in the past it would have been a statement of power. We've seen it across the world recently. Idi Amin, the terrifying despot of Uganda, spent $2 million on one of his weddings. Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, he's got giant statues of himself. He's got 17 luxurious palaces. Power and wealth tied together. It creates awe and fear all at the same time. But also allure. It draws us in. It's there to make us join in, to be part of the team. Now, these political empires are all about power and wealth of one person. But Western society, it's a bit different at the moment, isn't it? It's less about political empires. Instead, we have other kinds of empires. I think it's economic empires we're seeing. It's the glittering empire of consumerism. Rather than one king, we live in a world where corporation is king. Every bit of life is for sale to turn a profit. And it's all spun on the lies of making each and every person a mini emperor. The slogan from an advert years ago encapsulates it for us. Image is everything. Whoever you are, come in. 
come and taste wealth and power. And the glorious spectacle, it kind of comes at us from every direction. We see it in Hollywood with its red carpets. We see designer fashion and jewelry. We have it in our buildings, you know, like Dubai with giant luxurious skyscrapers. You've got the Burj Khalifa, uh, the Burj Al Harab, which calls itself. It's the global icon of Arabian luxury. It comes to us in the shopping experience. You know, we head to the shopping center. Just think of Union Square. Okay, as you walk in. There's this display around us of style, of money, of the good life. And it calls to us, instills obedience. Listen to one author speaking of the shopping experience. When a consumer enters the shopping mall, her senses are engaged by a panoply of stimuli designed to intoxicate Images, music, scents, and products swirl together in a whirlwind of desire. The consumer does not have to want anything before entering the shopping mall because it's designed to cultivate desire for her. And it provides her with the product she needs to consummate the desire it has produced. Interesting, it's an impressive empire demanding, alluring our obedience. And then this, this desire to join the empire of consumerism, it just gets compounded by social media. We, we head to Instagram or Facebook, and there it is again before us. And now not celebrities, but it's our friends and family. They're showing us the nice products, the beautiful houses, the luxurious holidays. Their white cotton curtains and violet hangings and couches of silver and gold are there for us all to see. We become the spectacle. We in, reinforce the ideas of the impressive empire. This is the way the world works. Join in, get on board. What might have been strange becomes common sense and normal. Of course I want to join in. Of course I want to make my life about what I own, what I wear, what I do. I want to taste the power and the wealth. It's so normal, it's even become everyday currency for those who call themselves Christians. Just think of the prosperity gospel with the the mega church pastors flying private jets, living in palatial houses. It's the vision of wealth to seal the power. And we're drawn in, aren't we? This is the world we live in. Whatever age, whatever country, there sits before us the impressive empire. But as Christians, should we be drawn in? should we resist in some way? Is it a world to be part of, to run from, to discern? What is it? You know, when this impressive empire is in full glorious display, how do we react? How should we react? Well, the writer of Esther wants us to see something else about this empire. Yes, it's the impressive empire, but it's also the laughable empire. It's the laughable empire. This is verses 10 to 22. Esther chapter 1 is quick to show us that this world is not what it's all cracked up to be. To go back to the emperor's new clothes, to show us that the emperor is actually stark naked. Okay, in verse 10, the story zooms in on the king uh, himself at the party. He's merry with wine. He's having shown off the rest of his wealth. He wants to show off what he considers his greatest possession, Vashti, his queen. Now, she is extremely beautiful, and he wants to display her to the world. To him, she's an object, an item, like all the rest of his glittering display. As one commentator puts it, she's the crowning monument to his own towering ego. So he commands seven eunuchs to go and get her. Why seven? I don't know. One would have probably been enough. But, but, but here comes the extraordinary moment. Okay, Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused 
to come at the king's command. King Ahasuerush, the ruler of the vast empire of Persia, with wealth and glory and greatness, the world at his fingertips, wealth to make Solomon blush, and Vashti just says, no. The king makes a public request and is publicly humiliated. All this power! And the queen just says, no. We don't know why. Perhaps she was just having too much fun at her party. Perhaps she didn't want to be paraded around like a prized dog. We're not told. But for whatever reason, this extraordinary moment opens the door to what this impressive empire was really like. Someone said that the mouse had roared and the glorious empire was shaken to its foundations by her refusal. The king had tried to bend her will to his own, but he doesn't have that kind of power. For all his pretense and spectacle, he isn't who he thinks he is. His wealth is meant to command obedience, and it can't. And and like a line of dominoes falling over one after another, more and more just gets shown about this empire. Next, we see the king absolutely loses it. Verse 12, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. The king has been humiliated in front of those who are to respect him, and his reputation is tarnished, and he explodes. Not only would his wife not obey him, but he couldn't even get his own temper to obey him. Complete loss of control. Then the king needs help to sort out this mess. He gets his seven closest advisors to come to him. You know, seven little minions to try and help this big kid get his way. Uh, he's, he's been personally snubbed, so he wants to turn the whole machinery of the Persian Empire against the queen. He kind of wants to smash this little nut with a wrecking ball. But, it, but he doesn't even know what his own law is, and he's at complete loss what to do. One of the seven, uh, Memukan, somehow comes out with an idea. I don't know if he was trembling as he did it, but first of all, he turns this, this little event okay, into a, a moment of potential chaos for the whole empire. Okay? If, if Vashti can refuse the king, then every wife will refuse their husband, and the empire is going to collapse in the sea of immorality. You know, it's not an overreaction at all, is it? But in the face of an explosive megalomaniac, he, he cleverly shifts the focus from the king to a cosmic chaos. So what are they to do? Issue a new law. Of course that we should do. That will sort it. Ban Vashti from his presence, the exact thing she had wanted in the first place. And that will sort it all out. All with the aim of stopping, by law, wives everywhere in every household doing exactly what the king couldn't get his own wife to do in the first place. It's utterly absurd. And not only this, but as the law is sent out in verse 27, to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, so it ends up publicizing the shame of the king. It tells everyone of his failure to bend the will of his own wife. His shame has gone viral by his own hand. Yes, he's published a new law, but it's all to reveal his lack of power. Uh, Someone said this new law, rather than underscoring his greatness, serves only to unmask the vanity and impotence and insecurity of this man and and his values. It's a laughable empire. Impressive, but laughable. Scripture is teaching us how to begin our response to the power and wealth and spectacle of our world. And that's to laugh at it. Ahasuerus had terrifying power 
But it's all a facade. Behind it was a man at a loss, with advisors giving bad advice, all to keep implicated. As we approach the powers of the world, God wants us to first see the ridiculousness of it all, the absurdity. He wants us to unmask the allure, the power for what it is, a facade, a pretense. He wants us to see truth and not listen to the spin, to not listen to the lies that the emperor is wearing clothes, but to see the truth that he's stark naked. Now, some Christians may live in places very similar to this, to this kind of experience of Esther, places where power lies in the hands of dictators or mafias, where the world is very dangerous. Perhaps this is actually your experience of your country, perhaps back at home. I know some of you come from countries with political systems riddled by corruption, elections rigged through intimidation, wealth at the top that stamps the poor to the ground. And in this situation, it can feel as if this power of life and death is no laughing matter. But perhaps laughter is sometimes the best way to respond. Laugh at the pretensions of it all. Like the the -the over-the-top car convoys gliding through uh, the slums. The, The ridiculous kitsch giant statues of the supreme leader that just looks ridiculous. The superficiality, the pathetic front when underneath there's actually deep fear, mistrust, weakness. These political despots are actually empty of real power. They're empty of true virtue and goodness. They're laughable. And it's true of our Western societies too. Our Western society takes itself very seriously often and yet elevates the trivial, the short-lived. You know, we elevate people who can kick a football well. Cars that might look nice, but actually just glorified bikes. Clothes that have a name attached and are suddenly triple the price. I saw some children's vests for sale. Seven of them made by Stella McCartney selling for £110. For kids' vests? They're vests. You don't even see them. What's trivial has become important. What are we doing? Why are we so caught up in it all? And social media just adds to it. We we start to mold ourselves, don't we, to get more and more likes or views or followers. Is that the depth that life's about? I read recently about a lady so caught up in it all that on the way home she bought some sushi. She took over 50 photos of it to get the right one before posting it online to get 231 likes. It's both funny and sad all at the same time, isn't it? There's a brilliant film, recent film called Don't Look Up. It's a satire that pokes fun at our present moment. And after an extraordinary cataclysmic event, a horrific event, one of the key characters takes a selfie and says, don't forget to like and subscribe. Like it's, it's funny if it also wasn't so true and disturbing. We've got to look at the impressive empire and see it for what it is. We've got to laugh at it. But why? Why? Well, actually, for very serious reasons. Some of God's people here are in the midst of one of the great empires of the earth. And as we get into the book of Esther, we'll see they they had to make some big choices. Would they stand up to the empire or go along with it? Speak up or shut up? And deconstructing the worldview presented to us, pulling apart the lies and the spin, it has three big impacts on us in the midst of it all. First of all, it actually highlights our own sin, doesn't it? How we've just got sucked in. How we're pulled in by the temptations of of wealth and power. 
Often the joke isn't out there, is it? It's actually us in here. The joke's on us. We can be the ones who love the trivial, who long to be kings of our own kingdoms. We're the ones who are infatuated by designer labels, who are compulsive buyers, posting photos of our latest look or purchase. We're the ones who need to repent. But secondly, laughing at the world means we can begin to be more discerning about how to live, how best to be humans in this world that we're in. Rather than just taking everything at face value, we can start to weigh things up, weigh things in light of God's word. You know, perhaps we're on social media, not because everyone else is, but because we've thought about it and we know perhaps it helps us to love our friends better. Or perhaps we've really thought about what shops we shop in and we've chose to shop in a different shop so that we don't tie our value to what we wear. That's why Sundays are actually so powerful. This is a Sabbath away from the allure of the world. A day when we say to the empire of consumerism, I'm not going to worship your gods, but worship the true and living God. You don't have a hold on me. I refuse to do your bidding. Laughing, it helps us discern. But thirdly and lastly, laughing at the empire of the world, it tugs our hearts in a different direction. As the allure of the world evaporates, our hearts long for something better, something with substance, something with meaning. We long for a different king who rules a different kingdom, a king who uses his power not for display but for good, who treats his bride with respect and dignity, who has control over his temper, who gives laws that write virtue and love onto our hearts. We long for a king who serves, who loves, a kingdom of glory not for show but for what's good. We long for Christ's kingdom, don't we? Our glorious king who reigns in righteousness and justice, who brings peace and truth. Laughing at the emptiness of what we can see helps us to fill our imaginations and hearts with what we can't yet see. The eternal glory with Christ. And as we do, so we long for him all the more. And we pray, come back, Lord Jesus. Amen.